Greetings and welcome to the Everything But the Kitchen Sink podcast. This is episode 17, part 2 of the 1980 New Mexico Penitentiary Riot. Today we will discuss the unimaginable horrors of what occurred in cell block 4, further events of the riot, and the beginning of the negotiation process. This episode describes scenes of disturbingly horrific violence. If this makes you upset or uncomfortable, please discontinue listening and pick up with part three next week. Now, let's start the show. A jammed grill at the entrance of cell block four, the protection unit, delayed for several hours the rioting inmates' entry. Any inmate housed in cell block four was labeled by most other inmates as an informant or a snitch, whether or not that inmate was housed in cell block 4 for other protective reasons or not, such as mental illness, they were rapists, or they were pedophiles. Inmates associated with the snitch game were risking danger. The snitch game is a system that uses the threat of disciplinary action to obtain information. In the words of one prison department director, sometimes inmates had to buy protection by informing. Also, the prison staff would threaten inmates that they'd spread the word that they snitched and put them back into population if they didn't provide information. While most staff members used informants and protected their anonymity, there were staff members and supervisors who did not use information confidentially. In fact, several staff members stated that the conduct of investigations within the penitentiary often made it obvious exactly who had informed on whom. Many inmates were going to spend the rest of their lives in prison because of the snitches in cell block 4. Overall, the snitch game placed the whole inmate population on constant high alert. It deflected hatred against the prison staff and focused it all on the prisoners in cell block 4. This was a high-risk method of control and created a tender box of rage that only needed a spark. Prisoners in cell block 4 had listened and waited for hours as the inmates for whom they were being isolated freed themselves and stormed through the prison. The residents on the south side of cell block 4, which housed 96 inmates, were able to see through barred windows and across a short expanse of the yard into cell block 3, where men were being let out of their cells. Some said later that they expected penitentiary officials to quell the riot quickly and therefore were not initially alarmed. However, many of the protected inmates barricaded themselves in their cell with metal bunks or tied their grills shut with towels and blankets. Just after dawn, Rampaging inmates shouting kill the snitches finally cut through the cell block 4 grill with the blowtorches and gained access to the protective custody inmates. Those cutting into the cell block shouted the names of their intended victims waiting inside. When individual cells were opened, some of the cell block 4 residents masked themselves with strips of torn blankets and were able to disguise themselves and deny their identities and save their lives. Groups of violent inmates, described later as execution squads, went from cell to cell in the protective unit designating their victims while waiting for the cutting crew to torch open the panel used to unlock the cells. Some impatient killers threw flammable liquids into locked cells and onto inmates marked for destruction and then ignited them. 
When the cells were opened, the rampaging inmates dragged many of their cell block four victims out and stabbed, tortured, bludgeoned, burned, hanged, and hacked them apart. Victims were thrown from upstairs tiers to the basement floor where many of the bodies were found. What occurred was the stuff of nightmares. All the forces of hell were unleashed in cell block four. A self-appointed execution squad went inside cell block four with torches. Killing the, quote, snitches wasn't enough. The inmates wanted to torture and mutilate their victims to inflict an enormous amount of pain beforehand. The first death was a, quote, snitch who cleaned up the halls. He was beaten so bad with a metal pipe that bits of skull and brains stuck to the third-story ceiling. One inmate had a piece of melted steel bar jammed through his forehead. Another inmate was tortured by having a blowtorch used on his face. When they started using it on his eyes, the inmate's head exploded. Another inmate, originally jailed for shoplifting, who, by one account, shouldn't have been in jail in the first place, was incarcerated in cell block 4 for his own protection after being gang-raped by seven inmates. He filed suit against the rapist and was housed in protective custody for his own safety. When the police later found him, he was hanged with his throat cut and had his dismembered genitals stuffed in his mouth. Another was partially decapitated when he was thrown over the top of a second-steer balcony with a noose around his neck. Horrifically, an inmate from cell block 4 with the mental age of 12 who was housed in protective custody because of his disability was decapitated with a shovel and had his head carried around by members of the death squad. That killing would occur once prisoners of all security classifications intermingled was a foregone conclusion with those familiar with prison life. According to one high-ranking corrections official, mixing cell block 3 and 4 protective custody inmates would mean certain death. Although cell block 4 was hell on earth, Death, in fact, began in the basement of cell block 3, the maximum security segregation unit where the most dangerous criminals were housed. Around 3 a.m. Saturday, inmates and hostages could hear pleas of, it wasn't me and I didn't do it in Spanish coming from the basement. The man shouting the denials was probably the first to die in the riot. Inmates later dragged his body out into the yard. Two more were killed and their bodies were left in cells in the segregation unit. One of the victims was shot in the face at close range with a tear gas canister. Violence, once varied in intensity throughout the riot, reached its peak in cell block 4 during the first few hours after sunrise on Saturday. Rioting inmates killed a full dozen in the cell block. Dormitory F1 residents were the next hardest hit by the killing where six were killed. Three were killed in dormitory A and B each. Residents of these dormitories suffered the greatest number of injuries during the riot, including rapes. The first of the wounded inmates to be treated by paramedics was a resident of dorm A, whose head and arms had been hacked by a meat cleaver. Oddly, dormitory E2, where the riot got its start, was practically undisturbed. While most of the penitentiary was being ransacked, flooded, Smeared with blood and gutted by fire, some inmates retreated to E2 where they drank coffee and watched television. Hostage officers kept in the south wing suffered the most violence at the hands of the inmates. Inmates beat and kicked several officers repeatedly during the ordeal. 
Some were stabbed and sodomized. By comparison, rioting inmates treated the officers in the North Wing relatively well. They gave the officers food, coffee, and cigarettes and protected them from attack by other inmates. Though unharmed, the North Wing officers' uh, captivity was the longest of the whole ordeal. The damage and killing was done by relatively few inmates. Most inmates tried only to escape the chaos. Some worked to rescue other inmates and some protected hostage guards. Wounded convicts and those overdosed on drugs were carried out into the yard by their fellow inmates. Some inmates manned the stretchers as an excuse to escape the building, but others returned each time and performed the task repeatedly. Less than two hours after the guards were jumped in dormitory E2, the inmates held 12 hostages, had released inmates from the maximum security cell block, controlled eight two-way radio units, and were equipped to gain access to all areas of the institution. And within five hours after the takeover of E2, the rioting inmates controlled the entire penitentiary and had begun to kill fellow inmates. Three employees were able to remain hidden in the penitentiary throughout the 36-hour ordeal that followed. Outside the prison, the deputy warden and superintendent of security were the first officials outside the penitentiary to be notified of the riot. They notified the Santa Fe police. At 2.30 a.m., a radio transmission from the inmates informed the warden that some of his officers had been taken hostage and that if officials tried to rush the institution, the inmates would kill the hostages. The inmates made it clear that they would not try to escape. They demanded to meet with the governor and members of the news media. After a brief conference, the warden agreed with the chief of police that they should try to negotiate the release of the hostages rather than attempt an immediate assault to retake the prison. Early radio negotiations were hampered because as many as eight inmates had walkie-talkie radio sets and all were trying to talk at once. Messages were lost or garbled in the confusion, and even clear transmissions were often contradictory as inmates fought for the role of spokesman. But some demands were consistent. First, the prison wasn't to be rushed or the hostages would be killed. Second, the inmates wanted to talk to the governor, warden, and former warden. Third, they wanted a public forum in which to air their general complaints of poor food, overcrowding, mismanagement of the penitentiary, and inadequate recreation. They also demanded that the administration of the prison resign or be fired. Despite these demands, state officials concentrated their efforts on one issue, the safe release of the hostage officers. Before dawn on Saturday, many reporters had gathered at the highway entrance. Friends and relatives of inmates joined the journalist in a roadside vigil. The only source of information about the events inside the prison was from radio scanner monitors which picked up the negotiations. Several of the reporters had scanners in their automobiles. Shortly before dawn, the warden briefed those at the gate but was able to tell them little more than they had already learned from the radio monitors. The warden intentionally declined to comment on the number or identities of the hostage officers because they had learned that three were hiding inside and did not want to tip off the rioters to the fact through the media. The warden told the media and families that he'd brief them every three hours, but this did not occur, causing reporters and families of inmates to scramble for facts. 
While officials gathered at the gatehouse, discussed strategies, and talked with inmates by walkie-talkies, the inmates had set fire to the psychological unit, the records section of the administration building, and the warden's office. As the fires spread, inmates radioed for fire hoses to combat the fires. The hose was dragged into the main entrance and the entrance and the inmates pulled it inside, but they did not use the hose efficiently. The burning continued. Alongside the chaos of the first night, in the very early morning, the first hostage left the penitentiary. An officer aided by uh, sympathetic inmates managed to sneak undetected past rioting inmates and escape through the main entrance. The officer was then debriefed by the state police as to what was going on inside. Now, by 5.30 a.m., 11 hostages remained in the hands of the rioters. At 7.02 a.m., just before sunup, some inmates dragged an officer who'd been stabbed, beaten, and kicked to the main entrance on a mattress. He was turned over to the authorities for medical attention. It was the first deliberate release of a hostage. Officials speculated that inmates released the officer because they feared he would die in their custody. Now 10 officers remained captive. Seven radio transmissions from inside the prison confirmed that some of the remaining hostages were alive. Five minutes after the release of the second officer, a third was released because he needed medical attention. At 7.30, the first contingent of National Guardsmen arrived at the penitentiary. They wore face shields, helmets, flak vests, carried M16s, bayonets, gloves, field jackets, gas masks, and batons. The guards positioned themselves in a riot control formation and awaited further orders. In the meantime, confusion of too many radios prompted one of the chief inmate negotiators, who had adopted the codename Chopper One, to ask for a field telephone for one-on-one communication. The rioters had destroyed the phones early on. The officials outside provided a phone. The inmates talked to the governor at 8.30 a.m. The inmates said that the riot was initiated to get someone's attention and complained at being treated like children. The inmates wanted to discuss their grievances in front of the news media. One of the inmates assured the governor that no one was going to be hurt and that the inmates would give up the guards and the prison by 3 or 4 o'clock that afternoon. In return, the governor promised that the institution wouldn't be stormed by police. At the same time, an inmate runner from inside took a list of inmate demands to the fence for the negotiators. They demanded a reduction in overcrowding, a compliance with all court orders, no charges to be filed against inmates, due process in the classification process, 10 gas masks, and two new walkie-talkies. Here's where we will close with part two. After close to seven hours, three of the correctional officers had either escaped or been freed because of wounding by inmates. Scores of inmates had been beaten and raped while unspeakable horrors and murders occurred in cell block four. We will continue with part three next week and look at the first full day of negotiations, escapes to safety by inmates, and inmate leaders' meetings with the news media, one of whom was invited inside. Thanks for listening, and I'll chat with you next week.